Sue Ellen's song is the fitting introduction to the passage in John 8 that we want to look at this morning because that's the very theme of Jesus' teaching in this passage is that His Word can set us free. So turn there if you would in John 8. We'll begin in verse 31 this morning. As I was studying this passage, I was reminded that just recently we celebrated the 4th of July and toasted and celebrated Lady Liberty and all that she stands for. We have rightly come to recognize the importance of freedom in life, that it's freedom that generates the color and the life and excitement, enthusiasm. A friend of mine who just came back from Expo said that people avoided the uh, Russian pavilion in droves because it was so drab and colorless. And I thought that was a fitting uh, symbol of what the absence of freedom produces in life. It makes things bland and gray and boring and uninteresting. We recognize that it takes freedom for us to truly experience the quality of life. And people recognize this personally as well as politically. And this is why we strive for financial freedom, financial security. Uh, that's why people like to be self-employed so they don't have to answer to anyone and have the freedom to come and go as they please. Now, Jesus introduces us in John 8 to what I believe is true freedom. These other things, political freedom, financial freedom, uh, freedom of self-employment, are just uh, shallow imitations of the real thing, the real genuine personal liberty that we need in order to be truly set free. And that's his subject in this passage. Most people, I believe, think that liberty or freedom is the uh, freedom to do whatever you feel like doing whenever you feel like doing it. But those that have lived that way discovered that that simply introduces you into a bondage of a different sort. What Jesus explains for us in this passage is that real freedom is the freedom to be all that we were meant to be. The freedom to become all that we were designed by God and intended by Him to be. He begins in verse 31 by describing for us a four-step process that will lead us into personal freedom. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John begins his account by telling us that these words of Jesus were addressed to those who had believed Him, who had come to the place of placing personal faith in Jesus as their Savior. Now, that's always the place that we must begin if we ever hope to be free. There is no possibility of being truly free, truly liberated, apart from coming to the place of personally placing faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus' audience had done. But as Jesus quickly goes on to explain, that you must go on from there in order to be truly free. That's the place you must begin, but you must go on from there. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never come to that first initial stage of placing faith in Christ, there's no hope that you'll ever be free in life. This is the place where we must begin. The second step, Jesus points out, is that we must abide in His Word. We must abide in His teaching about life. To abide means to remain where you are, to continue in something, to take up residence there, to lodge there. What Jesus means by this, I believe, is that we must become those who dwell upon the teaching of Jesus, 
who think about it, who ponder his teachings about life and meditate on them and consider the implications of what Jesus taught for life, and then to begin to do them, to begin to put into practice what we discover Jesus and his apostles to be teaching us about life and how it is to be lived. The consequence, Jesus says, if you do that, is you will truly be my disciples. The only ones who are true disciples of Jesus are those who do not simply come to the place of personal faith, but go on from there to abide in his words, to dwell upon them, to meditate upon them, and then to act upon them. Jesus is here countering the easy believism which is so current in our day, the sort of cheap grace that places the sole emphasis on that initial moment of conversion. There are many, some perhaps in this room, who have come to the place in life of placing faith in Christ, praying the prayer at the end of a four-law booklet, for instance, or going forward at a Billy Graham crusade, and in a genuine moment of belief and repentance, placing faith in Christ. But many of these people have never gone on from there to abide in the teachings of Jesus. There's been no progress. The word of Jesus has made no progress in them, as Jesus will go on later to say. Relationship of someone like that is much like the relationship of many uh, residents of England to their queen. They recognize her as the queen. They are willing to pay homage to her and respect her. But she has very little, if any, real authority in life. No practical authority in the lives of, of her subjects. And so many people are willing to pay lip service to Jesus and honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him because they have never continued to abide in his word. Jesus says someone who is like that is not a true disciple. They may call themselves a Christian, but if they do not continue in his word, they are not truly a disciple. And so we will see that these people uh, cease to believe in Jesus because of the conditions of discipleship. The third step, Jesus says, is not only to believe, not only to abide in his word, but if you do abide in his word, he goes on to say that you shall know the truth. If you abide in his teaching, you will be able to discover the truth about life and about yourself. You'll be able to see through the lies and the counterfeits that the culture around us is offering. I understand that when FBI agents are trained how to recognize counterfeit money, they spend the first several weeks of their training handling nothing but the real thing. Eight hours a day, they handle and look at and feel and rub the real thing. And then they're able instantly, after that period of training, to spot a phony. Jesus says the same thing is true in the spiritual kingdom. If you spend time in my word, he says, in the teaching of me and my apostles, you will quickly be able to spot a lie and to avoid it. You begin to discover the great truth that only God can make a true man and a true woman. That it's only possible for our manhood and womanhood to be fulfilled if God takes up residence within us. David mentioned earlier that uh, there is a God-shaped vacuum in each one of us that only God can fill. My kids have a little shape game. It's a little globe, and it has holes in different shapes all around this little globe. And there is one shape for each one of those holes. And I've watched my kids on the floor as they rotate that globe with a piece in one hand and try to find the right slot for that piece. And when they do, it slips right in, and there's a, a moment of discovery. Now, the same thing is true in the spiritual kingdom. There is a void within each of us that only God can fill. We may try to fill that uh, hole, fill that shape with toys and 
vacations and special trips and games and recreational vehicles, but we will quickly discover that only God can fill that void. And until He does, we never can be truly free. We'll go on to discover the truths of God about marriage and how to be the kind of partner in marriage that God has designed us to be. And we'll avoid the lies of the world that teach us that if the going gets tough, uh, the tough get going. Depart. Find another partner who will be better suited. They discover the truth that the only that great marriages are only forged by persevering through those really tough times in every in every married couple's life. At our growth group barbecue last Friday, I was preparing my bun for the barbecued burger, and I wanted to ask Debbie something, and I couldn't find her, so I began asking the people in the kitchen there, "Have you seen my wife? Where's my wife?" And the nine-year-old daughter of the host couple thought that I was saying "nice." She saw me preparing my plate there. And so uh, I said, uh, where's my wife? Has anybody seen my wife? I can't find my wife. And she looked at me deadpan and said, well, don't worry. You can always get another one. And uh, it occurred to me that that perfectly captures the approach of the world uh, to marriage. Many people go into it thinking of it as something uh, optional. There's a fine print escape clause at the bottom which lets you out if things get tough. We will discover if we abide in the teaching of Jesus that great marriages are forged in those moments of great difficulty. The fourth step, Jesus goes on to say, is that then, after you have abided in my words and discovered the truth, that the truth will set you free. Set you free from the hang-ups that plague us. I love the word hang-up. pictures you hung on a hook on a door unable to move, restricted in your movements. It's a beautiful expression for what, what troubles us as people. We're hung up on certain things. We can't seem to get beyond them. And our movement seems to be restricted. Well, Jesus came to set us free from those things that hang us up, those fears and those insecurities that keep us from being what we want to be. And it's His truth that enables us to do that. It's ironic to me that the motto in many libraries in our land, in fact, at the school that I attended, Secular University, there was inscribed in marble across the portals of the library, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I thought how conveniently they omitted the first part of that phrase. If you abide in my word, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You will begin to experience true freedom and liberty and fulfillment for the first time. A good friend of mine was sharing with me this past week that one of the reasons he knows that God has truly been at work in his life and that his experience of response to the Savior was genuine was that when he came to faith in Christ, he remembers distinctly the sense that this God-shaped vacuum in him had been fulfilled. And then secondly, what he remembered vividly was that the regret and the remorse for the things that he'd done in his past just melted away. He realized that all of those things he'd done that he wished he'd never done, those things that when, came, that when they came into his mind, he said, gosh, I wish I'd never done that, or boy, I wish I could do that over again. When those things he realized in that moment were forgiven, they were in the past that they'd been forgotten and forgiven by a gracious and loving God. And for the first time in his life, he was free from the guilt that had plagued him for those years. Now that's what Jesus is telling us here, that if we abide in His Word, we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Now in verses 33 through 36, Jesus goes on to answer the question, free from what, 
think in this passage, he tells us that his truth sets us free from two things. First of all, from sin in verses 33 through 36. And then later in the passage in verse 52, we're set free from death. Verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? The Jews, as Jesus spoke to them, were in fact politically enslaved to the Romans and at different periods in their history had been enslaved to the Assyrians, had been deported by the Babylonians, had been enslaved by the Greeks. But politically, they were not free. But the Jews prided themselves on being fiercely independent. They might be subject in body to the Romans, but not in soul. But Jesus goes on to point out that beneath that fierce independence was in fact an inner bondage that kept them slaves to this inner master. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free Indeed, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The verb tense that Jesus uses for the verb commit here is the present tense, which refers to ongoing, habitual behavior. The one who habitually, continually sins is the slave of sin. Now, any of you that have ever struggled with a bad habit know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. There may be some behavior that started as the satisfaction of some innocent little pleasure. But as you indulge in it more and more, it became something that got a grip on you. And you could not, despite your best efforts, uh, break free of this habit which had taken you in its grip. We fool ourselves into thinking that if I really wanted to, I could. Uh, like the guy who was asked if he uh, could quit smoking. And he said, sure, I can quit smoking. I've done it a hundred times. No problem. I think this, by the way, is one of the reasons, the main reason, in my personal opinion, why diet centers continue to flourish. They continue to flourish not because they work, but because they don't. And people are required to go back again and again to the same diet center or to try a different one or a new diet or a new book because the, the solutions offered do not work. They do not release people from this bondage. Now, Jesus says in verses 35 and 36 that a slave does not remain in the house forever. I've puzzled over this as I've thought through this passage, and I think I understand what Jesus means by this. A slave at that time did not remain in the house forever. He could be bought. He could be sold. He could be dismissed. He could be set free. The son was the one who remained in the house uh, permanently. He was the heir. He had a position of authority in the home that never could be taken away from him. The point, I think, that Jesus is making is that someone who is a slave cannot set another slave free. If a slave in a household told a fellow slave, you're free, I give you my permission to go, find your own way in the world, he knew that if he took him up on that, he would shortly lose his head. Another slave didn't have the resources or the authority to free another slave. But Jesus points out that the Son does. Now that's why it's foolish to go to anyone for help who will not point you to the Son. 
Someone who will not direct your attention, a counselor who will not direct your attention to Jesus Christ cannot give you any help. He himself is a slave in the house. He has no power, no authority to set you free. But Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, then you are truly free. You are free indeed. Only the Son has the authority and the resources to set people free and give them access to all of the riches that belong to God. When I was young, my best friend uh, was uh, the son of a dude ranch owner. And uh, every other Sunday or so, I would go with Johnny to this dude ranch. And as long as I was with him, I had the run of the place. We could go uh, anywhere we wished. We could have access to anything we wished. And the hired help could not do that. I remember this very vividly because at that time I was hooked on cream sodas. And any time I was with Johnny, we could go into the storeroom and have a cream soda any time we felt like that. The hired help couldn't do that. Because I was with the Son, I had access to the resources of the Father, unlimited access. And that's what Jesus is telling us here. If we are with the Son, if we are attached to Him, then we have access to all that God offers us. And He truly will set us free. Now, in verses 37 through 47, Jesus explains why it is that we cannot be set free from sin despite our best efforts. And as Jesus points out, the reason we are slaves to sin despite our best intentions is because of the life that we inherit from our spiritual father. The dialogue continues in verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, that is genetic biological offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. The verb that's translated has no place in you means, if you look in your margin, means that my word makes no progress in you. There was no advance of the word in the heart of these people. Their relationship to the teaching of Jesus was static, was inert. There was no response to his teaching and therefore the word was making no progress in their heart. I speak the things, verse 38, which I have seen with my Father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your Father. Notice the little contrast in that verse by which Jesus distances himself from his hearers. I speak, you do. I have seen, you have heard. I have been with my Father, speaking of His nearness and closeness, you have heard from your Father. Now Jesus sets up a little short answer quiz here for them, final jeopardy. He doesn't tell them in verse 38 who He thinks their Father is. He leaves that up to them to guess. And so they make a guess in verse 39. They answered and said to Him, Abraham is our Father. Jesus says, that answer is incorrect. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. He points out that when a man came from God with God's words, Abraham received him, accepted him, welcomed him. In Genesis 18, when the three men from God come to Abraham, he welcomes them and immediately prepares a feast for them. 
Jesus says that's how Abraham responded to someone who came from God with a message. You are trying to kill the one that has come from God with a message from him. Therefore, you cannot be Abraham's children. You are doing the deeds of your father. So they try uh, multiple guests B. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Okay, if you won't accept Abraham for an answer, perhaps you will accept God as an answer. When they say that we were not born of fornication, that may be a, an aspersion on the suspicious circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. The rumor almost certainly circulated that his own birth was illegitimate. He was conceived, of course, before his parents were married. And therefore, a vicious rumor, a slanderous rumor like that may well have accompanied him all his life. All his life, And they may be uh, emphasizing that to put him down. And they claim that God is our Father. And Jesus says, well, answer B is also wrong in verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. So he says, no, God cannot be your father, because if God were your father, you would love me, because I have come from God himself. Noah goes on in verses 43 to 47 to say, the reason that you do not accept my teaching is because you are in fact not sons of Abraham, nor are you sons of God, but you are children of the devil. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. This is the Dale Carnegie, how to win friends approach here. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks the lie, notice the margin, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. What Jesus points out here is that just as our biological characteristics are determined by our biological ancestry, so our spiritual characteristics are determined by our spiritual ancestry. Debbie has devoted one wall in our home to pictures of our family going back three and four generations. And we can see in our children biological characteristics which have obviously been inherited from their grandparents and even their great-grandparents. Now, Jesus is saying the same thing. You can recognize someone's spiritual ancestry by their spiritual characteristics. They inherit that. Now, what Jesus is saying here, and this is a, this is a very difficult saying, but it is exactly what Jesus is saying, that everyone in this room is either a child of a heavenly father or a child of a demonic father. And there is no in-between. Either you are drawing your life this day from a heavenly father, or you are drawing your life from a satanic father. 
Now, it's clear that Satan really existed, really exists today. This is clear from the teaching of Jesus in the rest of the New Testament. It's a difficult thing for modern man to swallow and to believe. Sounds like a relic of the Dark Ages. And yet this is the only explanation I can find for the condition of life in the 20th century. The 20th century is the most advanced technically, the most advanced scientifically, uh, the most intellectually sophisticated culture that's ever existed in the history of the planet. And yet more people have been killed by men in this century than all of the centuries in history put together. Well, why is that? Why is it despite all of our advances as a race, as a civilization, we cannot solve the basic problems of our time despite our best efforts? Well, it's because, as the Scripture makes clear, there is a malevolent being who operates invisibly. He's a spirit being. You can't see him. But he is out to destroy humanity. He is dedicated to that purpose. And he is powerful. He is stronger than the resources of anyone in this room, stronger than any man. And his purpose is to ruin life, to murder. When you read about a grisly murder on the front page, that's simply an external picture of what Satan wants to do to every human life. That's why Jesus calls him a murderer in this passage. He was responsible for the death of Adam and Eve, responsible for the death of Abel at the hands of his brother Cain. That he is dedicated to blight life, to ruin it, he is the one who is responsible for the misery and the gloom and the boredom and the grayness in life apart from Christ. He is dedicated to that goal. Now, Jesus says that explains why you cannot hear my word. Your ancestry prohibits you from doing that. You cannot respond to my word. And notice very carefully that Jesus says there is no middle ground. Those are the only two choices in life. As C.S. Lewis said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. As I mentioned, the tool that he uses to murder people, to produce death in human experience, is to tell people the lie. The lie, I believe, is the same lie that he told Eve in the garden. The lie that Man can be godlike without God. The lie that man is sufficient in himself, that he has the resources within himself to cope with life, that he is adequate in himself and doesn't need to depend on anyone or anything else. That's the lie. As long as Satan can get people to believe that, he can ruin their lives and blight it and make it gray and barren. I remember hearing a country western song several years ago, and the lyric from that song has stuck with me. I hesitate to mention this, lest you think that I listen to this kind of music. But uh, the song, I forget a lot of the lyrics that go with it, but the basic theme of this song was that a woman's life had been destroyed by someone who, some man who came into her life and didn't look like a destroyer. And she realized in the song that this was the work of Satan. And this is how the lyric goes. She's talking about Satan. I've heard a lot about him, but I never dreamed he'd have blue eyes and blue jeans. Now, the point of that, which I think is exactly right, is that Satan is subtle. He is a master strategist. In our culture, he no longer wears uh, red underwear and carries a pitchfork. 
But he shows up with blonde hair and blue jeans. Uh, he uses Madison Avenue to sell uh, sickly and sophisticated packages this concept that man is adequate and sufficient without God. But he is the source of that lie. And as long as a man believes that, he cannot hear the teaching of Jesus. He cannot hear it, just like a man who is tone deaf cannot appreciate Beethoven's Ninth, or a man who is colorblind cannot appreciate a great painting. So a man who draws his life from the enemy cannot hear the truth. Now this is why, even in Jesus' case, men did not respond to him. He says in verse 46, Who convicts me of sin? was an open challenge, an open question. And no one could do that. No one could convict him or accuse him of, of anything that would impeach his, his character and integrity. One of the strongest uh, verses in the Scripture to demonstrate the sinlessness of Jesus. An open challenge he issued to his critics. They could find nothing, no smirch, no tarnish on his character. And he always spoke the truth to them. And yet they still did not respond. And so there will be people in our circle of influence, despite the quality of life that we live before them, despite the truth that we communicate, they will not hear the gospel because they cannot hear it. Unless the Spirit of God touches them, releases them from the grip of the enemy, they cannot hear the teachings of Jesus. Now in verse 48 through 59, quickly as we conclude, Jesus tells them that the second thing from which he sets men free is death. The Jews answered and said to him, verse 48, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Things are starting to get ugly here. Conversation is rapidly deteriorating. They accused Jesus of being a Samaritan. Samaritan was their term for someone who was theologically untaught, who hadn't gone to the right rabbinical schools. And you have a demon. They accused him of being demon-possessed. Jesus responds in verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me, the one whom my Father has sent. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. The point of verse 50, I believe, is that Jesus denies what they accuse him of, but he says, I do not seek my own glory. I will leave that up to God. I will allow God, my Father, to be the one to vindicate me. He is the one who will glorify me and prove that I am indeed speaking the truth. Jesus, I believe, is referring to his resurrection. That was when the Father glorified him and gave final vindication of everything that Jesus claimed to be. Then he says in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. He will never experience death. As the Jews paraphrase it, he will not taste death death. So Jesus offers here the keys to life, the answer to death, and gives to his disciples the ability to face death with joy and peace, and in fact to face it with anticipation and hope. Uh, now, all the world knows is this life, as far as the world knows, uh, when this life is over, that's it. Everything is blackness beyond. And that's why so much of medical science is devoted to prolonging this life, because that's all there is to those who are apart from Christ. Debbie and I have talked about this, and neither one of us want to end our lives hooked up to a water bag. We'd much rather go in the quiet of our own homes, because we have something much better to look forward to than a simple prolonging of this life. Uh, for the believer, uh, death is just a passageway into a, an existence that is far more glorious and splendid than anything that we can know here. We just catch glimpses of it here. 
But there is a life beyond to which this life cannot possibly compare, even in its best moments. And that's why the only place, the only funerals you will ever find any joy or hope or optimism at are the funerals of Christians. Funeral of someone who is without Christ is a gloomy and dark affair. There is no hope present in the room. But when a Christian dies, he's gone to a far better land than he can know in this life. Now, the Jew, Jews realized the staggering claim that Jesus was making to be the conqueror of death, and so they respond in the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, again repeating what he'd said earlier, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself, or better, was concealed, and went out of the temple. Now the Jews were outraged by his claim to be the conqueror of death, but Jesus said, it's simply the fact, I can't say anything else. If I didn't say that I was the conqueror of death, I would be telling a lie. I am compelled to say that about myself, because it's the truth. Now, he says that Abraham saw my day. Some people think that he was referring to the day of his incarnation, that Abraham somehow looked forward in time and was able to see the period of the incarnation. But you'll notice when the Jews respond in verse 57, they understand Jesus to mean that he had seen Abraham. You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? So I think what Jesus intended to communicate and what the Jews understood was that when Jesus said that Abraham saw my day, he meant that Abraham saw me. Perhaps in one of the pre-incarnate appearances of the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, I believe, was the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham. And so that's what Jesus says. Abraham saw me. And the Jews, of course, can't believe this. And you notice how they rephrase it. Abraham was the more famous of the two, obviously, in their judgment. So they said, you have seen Abraham. Jesus said, Abraham saw me. They rephrase it to say that, you mean you have seen Abraham? When I uh, wear uh, my glasses, uh, a number of people tell me that I uh, look like John Denver. No one ever tells me that John Denver looks like me. It's one of the reasons why I wear contacts. I hate it when people tell me they, I look like John Denver. But that's what they do. They rephrase the question. You mean you have seen Abraham? And notice Jesus' response. Before Abraham was born, before Abraham came into being, I am. He uses a verb when he describes Abraham's birth that refers to coming into being. He was not at a period of time, and then he was. 
But he says, before Abraham came into being, I am. Not I was. He uses the present tense, I am. Meaning by that, that he always existed. That Jesus always existed. There was never a time when he did not exist. Unlike many of the cults who teach that there was a point of time at which he came into being, either as the first created being or as a man who was elevated to godhood, something of that nature, Jesus says, I am, I always was. A clear statement to his preexistence, and not only to his preexistence, but to his deity. When Jesus uses the expression, I am, I believe what he is doing is picking up the uh, phrase that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe one of the names of God in Isaiah. If you turn to Isaiah 40, you will see what I'm talking about. If you don't want to take time to turn there, you can just listen as I read it. But I believe Jesus is thinking here of this passage in Isaiah, and there are a number of other passages in Isaiah where the phrase, I am, was used as a name for God. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. That's the expression that's translated in the Greek Old Testament with the phrase that Jesus uses in John 8, I am or I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am He. So Jesus is making a clear claim here to be God incarnate in human flesh. Don't let anyone ever tell you differently. G. Campbell Morgan put it this way, These are the words of the most impudent blasphemer that ever spoke, or the words of God incarnate. The Jews understood that. That's why they picked up stones in verse 59 that were laying around to be used in completing the temple and tried to stone him. But God concealed him from them, so he was protected for another day. That's the conclusion that Jesus brings them to in this passage, that he was God in human flesh. This is the way one scholar put it. When Jesus says, I am, this means where I am, there is God. There God lives, speaks, calls, asks, acts, decides, loves, chooses, forgives, rejects, hardens, suffers, dies. In just a moment, we will be celebrating the Lord's table in which the great I Am suffered and died, and we commemorate that in celebrating the Lord's table. I would encourage you as we move to the elements to make this a time of worship. We will begin by dispensing the bread, which is a picture of the body of Jesus, sacrificed and broken for us that we might draw from Him as the bread of life. He was the great I Am who came to set us free from sin and death. Let's pray, and as I pray, the ushers can come forward. We thank you, Father, for this revelation about your Son that you've preserved for us in John 8, the one who was God incarnate in human flesh, the one who left the glory of heaven to become one with us, to identify with us in our hurt, 
and our pain and our suffering and to provide an answer for that, to provide a hope for that. And today as we move to the Lord's table, Father, we remember that act of generosity and sacrifice on His part. And we pray that You would make this a time of worship as we remember this incredible gift of Your Son on our behalf. We thank You now for the bread and what it symbolizes of His body broken that we might draw upon Him and His life as the bread of life. Amen.